the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. Get ready to take notes because school is now in session. Tackling the biggest issues in education, this is Education America. Save the classroom, save the country. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Abigail Johnson. Welcome to Education America, where we are working to save the classroom so that we can save the country. Join the conversation. K-12 education is the playing field where the battle is on for the future of our country. As the 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, succinctly stated, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. And how true that is. It really is. And Abigail, I'm so happy to be here with you again in studio. And we're very excited about our guest today who's calling in from, I'm not even sure where you're calling in from, Emily. I am at home in Tacoma Park, Maryland, which is right outside of Washington, D.C. Oh, I'm sure you're having just as wonderful of weather as we are here in Minnesota. It's a very dreary, drippy day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm having a little bit of a a fangirl moment here, so I'm sure our audience knows I'm just about barely staying in my seat to speak (laughs) with you, Emily. I will introduce you to our guests. Emily Hanford is an award-winning education reporter, and we are here tonight to discuss her most recent work. It's a six- part podcast series called Sold a Story, How Teaching Kids to Read Went So Wrong. And I will tell you, I have listened to the entire thing. I've listened to you on other programs. And um, the journalism that you did here, I think, will benefit both kids and teachers for years to come. And we are just so glad to have you on today. Mm-hmm. Welcome. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks. Well, and Emily, would you mind just for our guests, as as I already stated, I'm very familiar with your work, but I'd love for you to give us just a very brief overview of what the podcast is and, you know, how you started to move down this track as um, an education journalist. Sure. Well, I've been an education journalist for a long time, since 2008, so about 15 years. And I have covered a lot of different things. I've always done long form kind of deep dives on things. I've been, I've had a really good job for a long time. I didn't know very much about reading and how kids learn to read. I have two kids. They're adults now. They're 19 and 22. They learn to read pretty easily. I learned to read pretty easily. I didn't think very much about it. Um, and I didn't know that there was a huge amount of research uh, about reading and how it works. And I started to get interested in it about five or six years ago. And it started with kids who have dyslexia. Mm -hmm. So I was interviewing parents all over the country, and I was hearing the same story from all of the parents. 
And it was my kid went to school and something wasn't right. And I reading was really hard for her and they didn't know what was going on. And I went to the teacher and the teacher said, don't worry, it'll be fine. It'll all come together in time. We just need to find her the right book. And then it didn't (laughs) come together in time. And um, anyway, so it really started with kids with dyslexia. And it ended up in this most recent podcast called Sold a Story. And Sold a Story is six parts and four and a half hours. And it's really just about one idea that is at the core of a lot of reading instruction in schools. And the idea, it sounds really kind of simple, but there's a lot to it. And the basic idea is when kids are learning how to read, they don't have to sound out the written words. They can, but they don't have to. And it turns out that a lot of reading instruction and assessment and intervention is kind of grounded in that basic idea. You can kind of, you can look at, look at what's going on and see like, oh, that's what's going on. The idea is they can send out the words, so they'll get a little bit of phonics instruction. They'll get some help in learning some things about letters and sounds. But then in many classrooms around the country, little kids who don't know how to read at all or very much will go and get these books that have words in them that they can't sound out, big, long, difficult, multisyllabic words sometimes, and they don't have spelling patterns that these kids have been taught in their phonics lessons. And so they're told instead, well, when you come to a word you don't know, you, there's all these other things you can do. Mm-hmm. You can look at the first letter. You can look at the picture. You can think of a word that makes sense. And it turns out that those strategies, uh, which is, well, don't really look carefully at the word and sound it out laboriously and try to connect the spelling with the pronunciation and the meaning. Instead, you can just kind of more than guess, but take an educated guess at the word based on what you think it might be, uh, based on what the story is about and what you see in the picture. That turns out to be really not a very good idea. And yet uh, kids are being taught those strategies. And there's a lot of reasons for that, which we can get into. But that's the basic idea yes. behind Soul's Story. Mm-hmm. Six, pod, six episodes in four and a half hours, and it's just that one idea. You wow. don't have to sound out words. You can, but you don't have to. Right. And what's the problem with that? And how long, you know, we were talking actually right before we went to uh, record here that, um, you know, I was telling you that in my background as a speech pathologist, you know, we were reading about reading comprehension and whole language versus phonics. You know, this was 30 years ago, 40, 30, 40 years oh, ago. No. This is dating Let's not me. get into this too much here. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and we knew back then that whole language didn't work and that phonics was far superior. Now, you, you mentioned, well, you know, it's not that they're really using full-on full whole language, but interestingly, it's like they didn't really fully grasp how important phonics was, is what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we can talk a little bit about the history. But, you know, one of the things I want to say is speech language pathologists know the deal here. Yeah. They are the ones who have taught me. Like I just started realizing that as I was beginning to investigate that, those were often the people who were really helping me understand mm-hmm. the relationship between speech and print Mm -hmm. and what the role is of oral language and then what's so difficult for so many kids about written language and the connections between those two things. Mm -hmm. 
And I would say that sort of a, a kind of core idea that I think many, many people who haven't had a struggling reader or aren't a speech language pathologist, yeah. mm-hmm. a core idea that a lot of people have that I think I had as a, as like a human being in the world and as a mother of young children, because it so happened that my children learned how to read pretty easily. I think I held on to the idea that learning to read is basically like learning to talk. That it's mm-hmm. essentially the same kind of process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's developmental, that if that a, a, a child learns to read by being surrounded with books, that if you read to your child enough, they will become a good reader, that it eventually happens. Mm-hmm. Not that there's no role for instruction in school, of course mm-hmm. there is, but that really fundamentally it's just something that comes in time. Mm-hmm. And that's what so many of these parents with struggling readers were being told by their schools. Oh, mm-hmm. don't worry. He'll, it'll come in time. He'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it turns out really that, that if they're not the same. Learning how to speak is very different from learning how to talk. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, children's reading skills are very much built upon. It's very important what their oral language skills are and the words that they know and know the meaning of. This is all critical Mm -hmm. when it comes ultimately to being able to read and comprehend what you read, which Mm -hmm. is what's so important. Um, But it's not the same thing. And the big aha moment for a lot of people is that, you know, just like we weren't born with brains that are wired to read because as human beings, we invented reading and writing kind of recently. Like Mm -hmm. we've been around for Mm -hmm. a really long time and we've only been doing this reading and writing thing for a few thousand years. And importantly, for many of those few thousand years, reading and writing was really only necessary for some people, right? Mm -hmm. What there were so many ways that people could exist in the world productively and take care of their families without being able to read and write. Mm -hmm. But that's changed hugely over the past 200, 300 years. And it turns out that this, that learning to read is actually hard. Mm -hmm. It's quite hard for some people. It's not connected to intelligence. There are a lot of really hard people, uh, really smart people Mm -hmm. who have a very hard time learning how to read. Um, And some of us are kind of lucky and don't take much instruction, Mm -hmm. but some of us really need quite a bit of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? It And, you know, you make a good point. That's something that I hadn't considered, that reading and writing are newer skills, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, there were there were some people back in the day that didn't really get very excited about all the writing because they thought that that would... Um, lower people's memories because rather than mm-hmm. having to commit everything orally to memory, they were writing things down and they wouldn't memorize as easily. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, I think they were right. I, I mean, I don't think adults tend to memorize nearly as much information as they may have at one point. And, um, but I mean, I don't want to digress too far here on that topic because I think what you have to say is so important. But well, and I would love to talk to just back up for just one moment because we dove right into a couple of the different methodologies that are predominant uh, within how to learn to read. And I'd love to just give a very quick summary for our listeners of really the two theories we're talking about, which is one is phonics, Mm -hmm. um, which you talk about quite a bit in the podcast, and also uh, another theory which is can be called either whole language or cueing theory. And Emily, would you mind... Uh, just giving a very brief summary of those two different theories. Sure, sure. Um, so really, you can see that we have been 
arguing about the best way to teach kids to read for a very long time. Mm-hmm. In fact, sold a story at one point, went all the way back to the 1800s. Wow. Uh, because people, right when we really started the whole idea of public education, they really mm-hmm. came at the same time and for yeah. good reason. At the same time that we were figuring out public education is a thing that we're going to guarantee that we're going to, we're going to set up these public schools. We want everyone to be educated. We right away got into arguments about the best way to teach kids to read (laughs) because that's the fundamental thing really about going to school as a little kid. And really I I would argue the most important thing you need to get out of school because at the end of the day, if you can read, you can really learn just about anything. Right. Absolutely. So Mm -hmm. there have been two kind of, um, approaches to how to teach reading. And those approaches are based on an idea about how people learn to read. So that's what's kind of interesting is I like to disentangle. There's like a way to teach reading and you have to then go underneath the hood of that and be like, okay, so what's the assumption about how reading works that's underneath that idea? So one idea about how to teach is phonics instruction. So that's essentially start with the letters and sounds. You help Kids understand how to read whole words and then sentences and paragraphs and whole stories by starting with the little pieces. And you teach kids about how different spelling patterns work and the sounds that are in words that they know how to say, how they're represented by letters. Kids laboriously sound out words. It's not many of you who've had children or grandchildren or others and listen to them learn to read. They sort of slowly grunt and groan their way through these words. And it can be like nails on a chalkboard and it goes really slow. And you think, oh my gosh, can't we just, you know, spit so it out, true. kid. Can't you just get to the word? So, <laughs> so true. I laborious... did that with four kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And so, so that, so one idea is that you have to you start there, right? You start with the parts. And so it can be known as sort of like bottom up or like part to whole, right? You mm-hmm. start with the little pieces, you get to the whole. But then there was this other idea, which actually isn't quite whole language. It was called the whole word method. And that was, well, the goal is for kids to read the words and the sentences, right? And the, and the, and the stories. And that's where the joy is. That's mm-hmm. where we want kids to get. We want kids to start with the whole thing. So maybe they don't need to learn about all these letters and sounds and pieces. Maybe we can start with the bigger, more interesting part. And I think they did this with incredibly good intentions, right? Mm -hmm. The idea, that was the goal. Like, let's start with the meaning. So these approaches were known more as sort of top down, you know, going from the whole to the part, Mm -hmm. that that would be more engaging and more interesting for children. Mm -hmm. And so... That was whole word versus phonics. We had that debate for a really long time. And here's one of the reasons we had the debate, because no one really knew, right? People could make good arguments for both parts, both ways of doing it. But no one actually knew how reading worked. Like, how do we even do that? How does our brain, how do we learn how to read? Mm -hmm. And what happened is in the 70s, 80s, 90s, a lot of scientists, cognitive scientists and others, got really interested in that question. And they started studying it. And they had new tools and ways to study it. And they eventually had ways to actually look inside our brains as we're learning to read and as we're reading and watch what happens in our brains. How do we do that? How do we put it all together? So I'll come back to that. So Mm -hmm. all this scientific research started happening sort of in the 70s. And at the same time in the 70s, there was a movement that became very powerful in this country known as the whole language movement. Mm -hmm. And whole language stood for a lot of things, and many of them were very, very good things, right? It was really Mm -hmm. about 
getting good literature into classrooms, getting books in kids' hands, mm-hmm. having that end goal in mind, mm-hmm. recognizing little children as like meaning makers and, and kids who don't necessarily want to just be, you know, drilled on, you know, just be taught skills. They mm-hmm. want to get to the good part. Let's mm-hmm. expose children to good literature, all really good things. But the whole language movement also had as its kind of organizing principle or theory the idea that reading works essentially way, the way that whole word mm-hmm. method had it, mm-hmm. which is you don't have to teach the kids how to sound out the words. If we expose them to books, motivate them to want to read, they will essentially figure it out kind of on their own. Yes. Like they'll put right. it together. Osmosis. On their own. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And some kids mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. It turns out that a lot of kids really do put a lot of this together Mm -hmm. sort of on their own. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's very rare a kid who truly puts the whole thing together on their own. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of kids, a lot of parents don't realize that they're really giving a lot of instruction. If there's a young child sitting on their lap, they're reading a book, they're instinctively, they're sounding out the words slowly sometimes and Mm -hmm. pointing to the letters and the words, right? Mm -hmm. And these kids are doing that. And some kids really are starting to put it all together, that there's a system here. Mm-hmm. But it, that is not so obvious, it turns right. out, to a lot of us. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that a lot of us really do need to be shown this system at the beginning to mm-hmm. kind of, here, here, here are some of the basics about how it works. And it turns out that you, you do end up going on to teach yourself a lot of what you know about reading. But many kids really need, when they're five, six, seven years old, someone to really um, reveal the secrets to them, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. yes. show them that there's a system here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some people, as we know, actually need a whole lot of instruction. Like even even really good instruction in your classroom may not be enough for some kids. Mm-hmm. They need more right. repetition. They need much more help. They're going to need one-on-one instruction right. or small groups or whatever. Right. But essentially, the whole language movement really took off in the 70s and 80s. And it it was really sort of an idea about what people wanted school to be like for little children, I think. They wanted it to be more about, less about kids sitting in rows, less about a teacher sort of teaching them lessons or explicitly taking them through skills and instead letting them play and explore and come up with things on their own. All really good things for young children. But I think but what the scientific research has shown us with reading and not just reading is that when there is a skill that is really important for a child to know that is foundational, explicit and direct instruction is really helpful, mm-hmm. necessary for most people, and that there's no guarantee there's no guarantee that all kids are going to learn this. But the best way to give every kid a really good shot at becoming a good reader is to decide that in school, we are going to explicitly teach kids how to do that. So we're not depending on two things. One, that the kids will get it easily, which some kids do, or, which sold the story went into at length, if the school isn't helping them learn how to read, that the parents will take care of that problem. Mm-hmm. The parents will teach the kid at home, or they'll hire a tutor. And both of those things require time and or money. They require resources to be able to teach your child at home, to be able to um, hire a tutor. And so at the end of the day, I think we really have um, uh, like an equity issue here that some kids are getting the instruction they need outside of school. Right, right. When schools don't teach kids how to read 
it's harming some kids more than others. Right. And, you know, that's something that we've talked about a lot on this show as well. You know, Minneapolis has some of the worst uh, scores in really all of the nation. I mean, we have the largest achievement gap in the state of Minnesota um, between minority students and um, and white and Asian students. And it's really sad. But if you look at a lot of this at the core, it is the reading. It's the basic reading and math skills, both of which need direct instruction to really allow these kids to thrive. And so one of our questions, I think, for you is, you know, why, if this scientist scientific research was going on in the 70s and I guess into the 80s, here we are, 2023, why is this still not the predominant? Why, why have we not shifted gears in all the schools across the nation? Well, yes, you ask a difficult question. <laughs> I would say in many ways, that's what the Soul to Story podcast is trying to answer. I mean, I think the first answer, why, is that a lot of teachers just don't know about it, right? I don't think a lot of teachers know, and we know this from survey data. I know this from many, many interviews I've done from many people who've written to me. They, many teachers and other educators in schools don't know that there's a huge amount of research that has shown us how reading works in the brain and what kids need to learn. Now, the question is, why don't they know it? Right. And why they haven't they been taught that in their teacher education programs? Yeah. Right. And I think, I think there are lots of explanations there, too. I mean, one thing that we know and that I step back and think about quite often is it takes a long time for research to make it into practice in any field. You can look at good examples of this in medicine. Mm-hmm. The, it, is, it is hard to change a field that is deeply ingrained in something, or even if, even if it's not even deeply ingrained, it's hard to get new information in. So getting new information into a system is difficult. Getting new information into a system that has a strong stake in or belief in something that is quite different or opposite of it is even harder because you have resistance, right? So Mm -hmm. it's hard to get information out even if there's no resistance. It's harder yet to get it out if there is resistance. Mm -hmm. So we're in a system where there is actually a lot of resistance to this information because of what I told you before, this whole language movement that was quite influential and strong in the 70s and 80s and 90s and really did take some deep roots in schools. Mm -hmm. So even if schools no longer talk about following the whole language approach, it turns out that a lot of what is deep in the system is still kind of based on that foundation. Mm -hmm. That foundation being that you don't, in this particular case, that you don't, you know, have to sound out the word. So I, Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think there's resistance in the system. Um, And I think the problem, what I show and sold a story is that this idea that you don't have to teach kids to sound out the words because they have all these other strategies they can use to figure out what the words are. That has been sold to schools by a number of people, lots of authors who've written books, people who do professional development. Mm -hmm. Sold a story focuses on one company and four very influential people who have, are sort of the brand name of that idea, mm. but they're not the only ones, mm-hmm. right? So the, these ideas are really like deeply in the water mm-hmm. of schools. So mm-hmm. teachers have, have a hard time under, teachers have had a hard time accepting in some cases um, 
what is known about reading and how it works because in a, they sometimes they didn't even realize that they actually sort of believed in a different idea already. Right. They already believed in the idea that kids don't need explicit instruction mm-hmm. or only need a little bit of phonics. They already believed in that idea of like, well, let's teach them lots of strategies to figure out the words. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's why. Mm-hmm. And I think that all of these reading wars have going way back, gotten caught up in partisan politics, in partisanship and partisan mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. So we know that we live in a very, it, it, in, in a world where a lot of people are in their own camps about things and don't agree about things. And phonics and direct in, instruction writ large has been sort of associated with a more conservative mm-hmm. or Republican or mm-hmm. traditional or back to basics point of view. Mm-hmm. And then it really was the George Bush administration really took this on in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So it actually became identified with a president mm-hmm. who was in a particular political party. Mm-hmm. And then this other idea, this more whole language, which is now really sort of more called balanced literacy in schools. Mm-hmm. This was more associated with a kind of progressive, more left sort of liberal point of view. And so these, it's the debate is charged Mm -hmm. because of that. Mm -hmm. But those politics, people who think that those are the politics of reading instruction are often quite surprised because it's, it doesn't actually turn out that way. Like many of these Mm -hmm. cognitive scientists who I've been interviewing, I will sometimes ask them about their politics. Mm -hmm. And these are not Republicans writ large. These are not conservatives. Many of them will just say, I am one of the most liberal people you can find. But this is science. Right. This is what we have discovered. Yeah. This is what we know about uh, brains and how they work. Mm-hmm. This shouldn't be partisan. No. But it is. But it also isn't because at this point, it's not clearly partisan. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can go out and find people who are talking about the science of reading and stuff and the importance of bringing this stuff to schools. And you will find people on the right and the left and all the way in between and all over the place. And I would say anyone who thinks this is partisan at this point, look out because uh, you're going to make a prediction that will turn out to be wrong. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, I can't think of anything more equitable than making sure every child learns how to read. And so why wouldn't we use the science to do the best we can with every single child? Um, yeah. You know, we are running really low on time here already, Emily. Sorry, I we, no, no, not no, at we, all. We wanted no. to let you go because you have so much to offer. Um, but I would like to know, and again, this is just my burning questions that I just, I so enjoyed your podcast. And I think that I hope our audience knows that everything that you're kind of discussing here, they are deeper issues. And I was so impressed with how your um, your production of this podcast um, it, you really do delve into the intricacies of this issue, and I think you do such a balanced job of of um, really unpacking how this came to be, what it is, and even the the, the difficulties of reversing course, mm-hmm. hopefully. Mm-hmm. So in our last few minutes here, um, I would love to 30 know. Seconds. I know. I, I would just <laughs> love minute. to know. Just um, I'd love the audience to hear some of the teacher's response mm-hmm. um, to your research because I thought it was incredibly impactful. Yeah. And I've been hearing from a lot of teachers since Soul the Story came out. And I think that's really one of the reasons I've stayed on this for a long time. Teachers are, like I said, a lot of teachers didn't know this. And when they do know it, 
they it's difficult because right away they realize that there was something that they didn't know that they should have known and that they might have actually been harming some of their students by teaching them strategies that it turns out makes it harder for many kids to learn how to read. So teachers are reacting um, by saying they're having a hard time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They are seeing the faces of the kids and remembering the names of the kids who they didn't teach how to read. Mm Many of them are resistant at first because it's hard to accept this, but I feel really encouraged by all the emails and other messages I get from teachers who are saying, bring it on. I I didn't know this and I want to do better. I want to learn this. Who do I, what do I read? Who do I talk to? Where do I go? How do I talk to my principal? How do we, how do we change this? I I recognize this needs to be changed. And thank you. Fantastic. Emily, this has been so informative. Do you have a website? I mean, obviously people can go and search for Soul the Story by Emily Hanford, but do you have any other website that you'd like to name? Yeah, you sold a story. And I, I would love to know the people to know that linked on there are all the other pieces we've done over the years um, on this. And there is an article that I wrote in 2018 about what parents can do. Okay, uh, if very you think good. your, thank your you. uh, child's school isn't teaching reading thank right. You. So thank you for having yeah. me. Thank, thank you, you, Emily. Have a good night. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.